there. Welcome to the Soil and Roots podcast, journeying together into deep discipleship. I'm Brian Fisher, and this is episode 30, Time in a Bottle. If you like the podcast and it's provoked some good discussions in your world, would you mind giving it a great rating on your favorite podcast platform? Positive ratings are a huge help for us, so thanks in advance. If you don't like the podcast, well, <laughs> that raises questions as to why you're listening to episode 30. Southern Roots explores spiritual formation, our community journey to become more like Jesus. However, we live in an age of the great omission. We seem to be struggling to make disciples. Plus, we face three other problems, the forgotten kingdom, the discipleship dilemma, and the formation gap. Now, the good news is all those can be turned around. Here, we're primarily focused on some pretty deep topics central to our discipleship. The unconscious ideas and culture in our hearts that govern us, and how these hidden ideas interact with our desires. Admittedly, this is a non-traditional way of exploring discipleship, mining our hearts for these mysterious things called ideas. I don't remember reading about those in the Bible. These ideas and desires may or may not align with our belief statements, with our doctrine, or even our stated worldview. As we become spiritually formed in Christ, a large part of our journey is uncovering not only the presence of these unconscious ideas, but the reasons why they're there. This is what Jesus did all the time. He invited those around him to explore their hearts so that they might draw closer to him. And it had a lot to do with why he spent a lot of time giving the Pharisees a hard time. They understood their belief system. They understood doctrine. But they refused to give Jesus the depths of themselves, their hearts. And they were entrapping others in a system of beliefs that had no impact on their hearts, maybe even a negative impact. They were motivated by power and authority and not surrender and humility. You're listening to Season 3, and it's all about that third primary problem, the formation gap. We often consider that what we assume today about church, our unconscious ideas about church, don't actually always bear a whole lot of resemblance to what the New Testament assumes and embodies as church. The New Testament idea of church is far similar to what we're calling an immersive community of formation, or a greenhouse, compared to what most of us actually experience today. You can find much more information on greenhouses on the website at soilandroots.org, and we're going to take some episodes down the road to explore them in detail. We're pondering that New Testament communities seem to have far more in common with other normal, highly formative experiences today, such as early childhood or marriage or college, than they do what we experience in modern church. Does that mean we stop going to church? No. We love our pastors. We love our churches. I am suggesting that despite our good intentions, we're missing out on what genuine Christian community and discipleship is all about. And we're suffering for it. We sometimes feel disconnected, lonely, isolated, even sitting in church. Does anyone truly know us? Does anyone want to truly know us? Is there more to the Christian life than what I'm experiencing? As Christians living in post-modernity, we're experiencing an extraordinary gap in our efforts to become like Jesus. We call it the formation gap. And many of us don't even know it. It's just the air we breathe. Today, we're finishing up our exploration of the first key element of formation, time. And here's what we've covered so far. Human hearts require certain things to be formed, or unfortunately malformed. We call these things the five key elements of formation. Our hearts require increasingly complex instruction, even as adults. We look to be instructed about what to do, who we should be, how we should act. And like every grade school student, that instruction needs to start with the basics 
and slowly and gently take our hearts into deeper and deeper ideas and truths over time. Our hearts require transparency, intimacy. Our most desperate need, our most desperate longing, is to be known by someone who pursues us, who secures us, who loves us and accepts us, even when we're messy and broken and wounded and angry. That type of longing can only be met through transparency and intimacy. To be known means that we lay ourselves bare with the good and the bad, and to be in relationship with those who do the same. Those who seek our goodness, they're trustworthy. Our hearts require immersive community. Safety, trust, acceptance, formation can only occur in a community of other people who embody these characteristics. If we're isolated and alone, if we're immersed in a community that does not seek our goodness, our hearts will be formed into darkness. Isolation and dark communities produce the same thing. Hearts that are mistrustful, wounded, abandoned, numb, frantic, uncertain, and even cold. Our hearts require specifically defined habits to be formed. We're integrated beings living in an integrated world. And as we're going to discover, habits are not just what we do. Habits are deeply embedded patterns in all eight of our heart view indicators. Our patterns of thinking, emotions, our health, behaviors, relationships, words, and our patterns related to how we use time and money. Habit forming is one of the most difficult things to do. Just ask anyone who makes New Year's resolutions every year. They're difficult because we normally don't look at them holistically, and we normally don't look at even our own stories to help us determine why we have the habits we do and why they may be difficult to change. Lastly, our hearts require intensive time. And by intensive, I don't just mean the quantity of it, I mean the quality of it the intentionality of it, time immersed in what and with whom. As we contemplate forming or joining these types of communities, what sort of things characterize these communities regarding time? Well, we've briefly covered three points so far. In episode 27, we explored time and formation through the lens of modern neuroscience. Now, for some Christians, looking at anything but the Bible to understand humanity and formation makes them a little bit nervous. I'll just remind us that God wrote us two books, one is special revelation, and one is general revelation. Both reveal God. God wrote us the Bible, and he wrote us creation, or rather he spoke it. Because of our current post-enlightenment, unconscious, somewhat shallow ideas of anthropology, modern Christianity tends to forget about, or even ignore, God's second book. Both books were written by the same author. Both books line up quite nicely and are in complete uniformity. You'll find scores of references to God's second book in his first book. The Bible is chocked full of stories and parables and references and metaphors and types and themes and allusions to creation and culture. In fact, the Bible assumes the reader has a deep understanding of creation. And God's second book of creation is chocked full of invitations to read God's so-called first book, The Wonder and Majesty of the Human Being. Our capacity for thought, morality, a hummingbird or a sunrise or a symphony provoke us to further explore the author of creation Unfortunately, he wrote us his first book so that we may get to know him better. The Bible is not the only source of truth. 2 plus 2 equals 4 does not appear in the Bible. The Bible is the final arbiter of truth. The Bible is not our only authority. Parents, bosses, governments, those are all valid authorities, though the Bible is our final authority. So to study modern neuroscience to better understand spiritual formation, it's a worthy, good, kingdom-oriented exercise. We should always expect science to affirm and align with the Bible completely and seamlessly, and that's certainly what the fathers of modern science assumed. 
The key point from episode 27 was a quote from a neuroscientist and his pastor friend. They wrote this, Our right brain governs the whole range of relational life, who we love, our emotional reactions to our surroundings, our ability to calm ourselves, and our identity, both as individuals and as a community. The right side manages our strongest relational connections, both to people and to God, and our experience of emotional connectedness to others. And character formation, character formation, which is the primary responsibility of the church, is governed by the right brain, not the left brain. The first point we've learned so far about time and spiritual formation is this. Our spiritual formation in Christ is primarily about the time we spend in relationships. Well, what relationships? You know, in relationship to God, but also others, ourselves, and even creation. Time in intentionally cultivating deep, abiding, trusted relationships, emotional relationships, sometimes messy relationships. In the last episode, we explored two other points related to time as a key element of formation. Because of modern civilization's dependency on clocks and watches and productivity and constant pressure to be busy, because otherwise we obviously aren't being good stewards of our time, we struggle to be present in time. We're constantly multitasking and focusing on the next to-do, event, meeting, or piece of entertainment. So we miss all kinds of opportunities to be present in our four relationships. We struggle to hear God's voice. We have a conversation with our spouse, but we aren't really present. It's not that we didn't hear the words, we don't hear their hearts, which requires a whole different type of presence. Even in small talk with friends, we miss opportunities to pursue, to seek their goodness, to heal. Being present in even seemingly random conversations sometimes yields wonderful opportunities for restoration and the kingdom. And in relation to ourselves, well, we'd rather not spend the time engaging in heart view. We'd rather not know and explore the desires and hidden ideas in our hearts, so we keep ourselves busy with distractions, even religious ones, so we avoid engaging in our stories, entering into necessary suffering, and being courageously curious when our hearts are screaming for healing. The third point we've explored about time, more dialogue, less monologue, particularly in relation to God's word. As humans, we're formed far more effectively through interaction, relationship, debate, honest discussion than we are simply listening to lectures. Our key quote on this point is from Clyde Reed. Quote, the adult members of churches today rarely raise serious religious questions for fear of revealing their doubts or being seen as strange. There is an implicit conspiracy of silence on religious matters in the church. This conspiracy covers up the fact that the churches do not change lives or influence conduct to any appreciable degree. End quote. If he's correct, there's no better explanation of the formation gap. If the modern church does not change lives or influence conduct, well, that's the opposite of a truly formative community. Many of our churches haven't created a public affirming culture where we have the opportunity to ask questions publicly and honestly express doubts, offer counterpoints, or dialogue about the sermon or other teachings. The underlying assumption is this. We teach, you listen. Now, we might say, well, we dialogue and Bible study in small groups. Well, I hope we do, but it depends on the culture and the purpose and the leadership of the group. If we go to a Bible study and the study guide's questions simply ask us to regurgitate the text, that's not really formative. We may walk away knowing more about Jesus, but have we become more like Jesus? How many of us sat in high school or college and memorized the material just long enough to answer the questions on the test, and then the information was gone forever? 
If your Bible study or small group leader intends the class to help form you more and more into the likeness of Jesus, there's probably going to be space and openness for you to share your story, ask questions, express doubts, challenge the material, and even to disagree with someone politely and winsomely, hopefully. By the way, I'll just note if your church or Bible study decides to adopt the more dialogue-centric approach, not only should the congregation be invited to interact with a sermon or message in appropriate ways, the pastor or teacher may also be invited to ask questions. Just curious, do you think we'd all pay more attention to the sermon if we knew the pastor might ask us a question or two directly after the message? Hmm. So to summarize, three ways people in formative communities treat time. Number one, discipleship is time in intentional relationships. We cultivate, we celebrate discipleship as a primarily relational journey, which does require substantial time in all four relationships. Number two, we're present in time. We're always moving towards being there, present, spiritually attuned, and gently pursuing in our relationships with God and others and ourselves and creation. And three, more dialogue, less monologue. We intentionally cultivate an environment where doubts, questions, concerns, even dissent are welcomed and encouraged in our time exploring both of God's books, primarily his first. Okay, so as we finish up our exploration of time this episode, let's just get a bit more practical. Last episode, I quoted several comments from Dallas Willard. About discipleship, he said this, Disciples are simply people who are constantly revising their affairs to carry through on their decision to follow Jesus. I've said that a disciple is someone who reorders or reprioritizes their life so that becoming more like Jesus is their first thing. We seek first the kingdom and its king. So what would it mean to revise our affairs or reorder some things so that our time was oriented in a way so becoming more like Jesus is our first thing? Let's take a look at this in light of the four relationships God has placed us in. And let's start with our relationship with God. How we relate to God and how we spend time with God is something that has been explored and written about for centuries. There are thousands of books and teachings and devotionals about how we may relate with God. We probably know about prayer, the Word, fasting, meditation, Scripture memory, confession, the role of the Holy Spirit, corporate worship. Those are all essential ways we relate to God, that we grow to love Him more. We call most of those things spiritual disciplines. We can make the case we've lost the essence and practice of many of these spiritual disciplines today, but anything I would add here would simply be repeating what, frankly, far smarter and thoughtful pastors and writers and teachers have already said over a long period of time. So, I'll just note one reminder about how our relationship with ourselves impacts our relationship with God. If we want to develop and grow in God, He invites us to enter into our own stories as part of that journey. Dealing authentically and kindly with our stories impacts how we relate to God because our hearts translate our stories onto all of our relationships, including those with our Father. So if you read the Bible and you feel anger, loneliness, or condemnation, or maybe nothing, it may be time to look at your story. If you pray and pray but can't seem to sense God's presence, it may be time to dive into your story. If you don't feel emotionally connected to God, who created our emotions, it may be because of your story. If you struggle to relate to God as he primarily reveals himself in both of his books, as a loving, faithful, good father, your struggle may not have anything to do with the amount of time you spend in prayer or how often you fast or how many verses you've memorized. It may be your gentle father's way of inviting you back into your story so he can meet you there, so that he may heal you there. 
In Anatomy of the Soul, Kurt Thompson writes, quote, You cannot know God if you do not experience being known by him. And the degree that you are known by him will be reflected in the way in which you are known by other people. In other words, your relationship with God is a direct reflection on the depth of your relationship with others. End quote. This is why we may be discerning some wounds or brokenness in our hearts through how we relate to God's books, or in our prayer time, or when we just sit in church. If your highly formative earthly relationships, whether parents, caregivers, siblings, teachers, mentors, spouses, did not embody kindness, gentleness, a desire to know you in your heart, a desire for your goodness, your heart assumes that same type of broken relationship with God. And coming to embrace the love of the Father may not be as simple as reading Bible verses about him. It's something that needs to be experienced, to be explored, and in some cases that may also involve some grieving. Ecclesiastes reminds us it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. As we continue to contemplate how to form communities like greenhouses today, what other humans should we be spending time with so that our hearts are formed more into the likeness of Jesus? is probably common sense, but spending intentional, substantial time with people who think, act, speak, desire, and love a lot like Jesus. People who remind us of Jesus. They have a quiet confidence, not arrogance, but confidence. They know who they are, and they know whose they are. They probably don't walk around quoting scripture all the time. They probably aren't up front or in the spotlight. They may prefer to stay behind the scenes. They may be a leader in your church, but they may not. These are people who, when they're with you, they're with you. They're present. They pursue you in the very best sense of the word. They intentionally seek what's good for you, even if it hurts a little bit. They probably don't tolerate it when you say, I'm fine. And they have an uncanny knack of asking the right question at the right time. They see you, not just the outside you, but the inner you. They certainly aren't perfect, but they are different. People who are deeply in love with Jesus and are becoming more like him, they're just a bit different from the rest of us. I don't want to take the metaphor too far, but there is a sense that discipleship is more about what's caught than what's taught. And we've heard that phrase in parenting and education for decades. In The Master Plan of Discipleship, author Robert Coleman discusses the formalization of the worship service through time, and he compares it to the New Testament church. He touches on the point I made earlier about dialogue versus monologue, and then he goes on further and relates it to community and relationship. So in discussing New Testament gatherings, he wrote this, Throughout the meeting, ample opportunity seems to have been given for personal participation. Each believer was free to exercise his or her spiritual gift, ask questions, share any concerns as the Spirit might lead. Officers in the local fellowship doubtless provided some direction to the service, but the worshipers were not dependent on them. Worship patterns gradually became more formalized towards the close of the first century. This is not to disparage formality or to belittle the need for defining doctrine for an increasingly complex body, must have some sort of stabilizing order. But in the formalizing process, we must preserve the fellowship that gives heart to the structure. Later on, he writes, Reading the Acts, one gets the impression that the Christians just enjoy doing things together. In these casual relationships, probably more than in their gathered meetings, they learn what it meant to follow Christ in the daily routine of life. And then he concludes, the spiritual life of the Christian community clearly is interwoven with their continuous interpersonal association. End quote. So, time with others in daily life. Time with people who remind us of Jesus in addition to weekly or official gatherings. 
You know, perhaps in our modern transient times, this is the most challenging and vexing aspect of the key element. How do we find the time to spend time with people who love like Jesus so that we catch what it means to love like Jesus, especially if our only opportunity to meet with most people is for an hour on Sunday morning? If we struggle with anxiety, who might we spend time with who will engage our story and isn't very anxious? Someone with whom we experience calm, confidence, trust. If under the surface we're fearful, who might we spend time with who will engage our story and isn't full of fear? Someone with whom we experience stability, certainty, trust. It's a matter of thinking through our relationships and praying about who in our circle reminds us of Jesus. Again, it's not necessarily about theological knowledge or gifts of the Holy Spirit or emotional reactions in worship services or titles or who in your church has the most successful business. Who in your circle pursues you for your goodness? Who invites you into a deeper relationship? Who takes you as you are? Isn't trying to manipulate you or coerce you? Isn't using you? Isn't exploiting you? Rather, they invite you to become more like Jesus simply because they love Jesus and they love you. Those are the types of people we all need to be around, a lot. Are there ways we can creatively reorder our lives so that we invite these saints into our world so that we do some portion of life together? I know, it's pretty radical compared to our rugged, individualistic, pull-yourself-up-by-our-bootstraps-I-gotta-get-to-my-next-meeting lifestyle. Reordering our lives to consistently be in the presence of loving saints? That's not easy. Also, I'll just note that part of the reason we don't seek out time with these types of wonderful folks is because we're so trained to go. Instead of viewing the Christian life as one of deep fellowship, we feel guilty if we aren't doing something, going somewhere, or giving ourselves away to someone. We tend to forget certain parts of the Great Commission. When Jesus said to make disciples, we're discovering that's a time-saturated, fantastic, relational journey in community. Overseas missions are wonderful, but don't forget the mission in your marriage or your family, or your church, or your street, or in your own heart. And we can't forget that the very last thing Jesus said before he ascended was a reminder that he's with us. He's present. He abides. He dwells. The very last thing he said is a beautiful picture of a lasting, secure, safe, transparent relationship. Okay, when we talk about how a small, immersive community like a greenhouse is characterized by time, with ourselves, that may sound a bit strange. What do we mean by spending time with ourselves? Well, let's go back to season two in Heartview. Being a disciple means getting to know two people really, really well. Jesus and ourselves. And learning to love them both. Soren Kierkegaard wrote, quote, But to love oneself in the divine sense is to love God, and truly to love another person is to help that person to love God. End quote. As part of our spiritual formation, do our formative communities intentionally cultivate an environment where we can safely and gently explore those eight indicators so that we listen to and dig into the ideas and the desires that govern us? Have we gently but authentically revisited and dealt with our own stories? Do we take the time to pay attention to our thought patterns? When we talk to ourselves, what's our tone? What type of language do we use? Do we treat ourselves with kindness as an image bearer of God, or frankly, do we treat ourselves harshly? Emotions? Do we accept that our emotions are good gifts from God? Are we taking the time to pay attention to when we're anxious or fearful, or when we're angry or sad or glad? Do we take the time to assess our spiritual, emotional, and physical health? What about our relationships? As we just asked, are we spending time with people who seek our goodness, 
at least some of our discipleship is more caught than taught, are we spending time with people who, just by the nature of who they are and how they treat us, are forming us well? And on to our actions and our words and how we relate to time and money. Are we courageously curious about our indicators? Are we taking time to be curious? If we go on a spending spree on things we can't afford or don't need, are we courageously taking the time to ask why we're doing that? If we're surprisingly irritated with our kids, can we take a step back and take some time and ask why we're irritated? We're not responsible for the harm that's been done to us. We are, however, responsible when that harm results in us harming others. As author Jay Springer notes, always someone else has to suffer because I don't know how to suffer. That's what it comes down to. End quote. A formative community like a greenhouse teaches and trains and models heart view in a safe, trusted environment. It encourages people to take the time to understand how God has wired them and how their story impacts their hearts and their other three relationships. Can it be difficult? <laughs> yes. Can it be messy? Yes. Do we need to exercise great care and concern? Yes. But when we invite God into the ideas and desires in our hearts, we are engaging in authentic spiritual formation. Our fourth relationship, lastly, what characterizes a deep discipleship in relation to the time spent with creation? Creation can be defined a couple of ways, but what we're talking about here is creation in the context of our four relationships. We're talking about nature and its derivatives. Culture is a derivative of creation. It's man forming governments and institutions and arts and so on from the natural order. God has placed us in these four relationships with two primary purposes, to love and to rule. We love God, we love others, we love ourselves, and we steward creation and culture, which in itself is an act of love. It's called the cultural commission or the cultural mandate, and we first find it in Genesis 1.28. God created the world good, and he appointed mankind to populate it, subdue it, to refine it, to mold it, and to adapt it for his kingdom purposes. So, as rulers of creation, are we spending time subduing it? Well, whether we're aware of it or not, we do. If you mow the lawn, you're subduing creation. Bake a cake, you're making something beautiful and tasty out of independent ingredients. You are integrating what is disintegrated. Writing software, ruling creation. Fixing a broken fence, ruling creation. Growing food, ruling creation. Making music, ruling creation. You're taking notes and sounds that are otherwise independent and chaotic and bringing them together in a beautiful, organized, sonic work of art. Building roads and bridges, developing financial reports, making someone breakfast, managing a project, writing a novel, raising your kids, creating a flower bouquet, knitting a blanket, all aspects of our relationship with creation as we rule and steward it on behalf of and relationship to our king. In modern Christianity, we tend to think we're only stewarding creation and culture if we're in some sort of ministry, running for public office, or building a house with Habitat for Humanity. We can't possibly be ruling creation unless it's some sort of Christian activity. All those things are good, and they're part of bringing order and beauty from disorder and chaos. But a deep disciple recognizes the beauty of ruling creation in the mundane, and we celebrate it. We honor it. It's a little bit difficult in the West right now because we've sort of unconsciously assumed the idea of Christian versus secular. Christian music and secular music. Christian bookstores and secular bookstores. Christian organizations and secular organizations. Well, not to overstate the obvious, but the only thing that can truly be Christian is a person. And if we accept Psalm 24, that the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, there really is no such thing as secular. It's all sacred. It all belongs to God. 
Our purpose then is to rule and steward creation wherever we are. We're characterized by the time we spend making order out of disorder, bringing healing to hurt, providing structure from disorganization, integration where there's disintegration, beauty from ashes, overcoming evil with good. The Bible is filled with all sorts of re-words. Redeem, renew, reconcile, restore, refine, reborn. As rulers of creation, we bring order, and because of sin, we work to fix what's been broken. We reverse the effects of sin with the king, whether it's in our hearts, our marriages, our families, our jobs, our communities, or even in what we call broader, the seven mountains of culture, perhaps in government, or the arts, or business. Time is a crucial element in our spiritual formation. A deep disciple relates to God through spiritual disciplines and our other three relationships, and we recognize God is calling us, inviting us, speaking to us in a myriad of ways. A deep disciple seeks out relationships with people who remind her of Jesus. Sometimes discipleship is more caught than taught. A deep disciple engages his own story, his own wounds, with courageous curiosity, understanding that his depth of relationship with God is directly related to his relationship with himself. And for the deep disciple, there is no such thing as secular. It's only sacred. We honor, celebrate, and look for opportunities to rule, steward, redeem, reconcile creation for the benefit of others and to the glory of its creator, even in the mundane. Jesus constantly invites us to continuous acts of re-words, redeem, restore, renew, refine, not only with people, but with his creation and his culture. Hey, thanks for listening. If the podcast is helpful, Give us a positive review on your favorite platform. And for more information, check us out at soilandroots.org. If you'd like to connect with us, you can email us at fish at soilandroots.org. And we're also on Facebook. Just search for Soil and Roots Podcast. We'll see you next time.